Welcome back to another episode of the Dunkin' with Dom podcast. Micah, free agency has oddly quieted down. It's time to take a little pause and break down all of the moves and all the chaos that's happened. It's good to have you on again. That's right. The dust has settled. Always a pleasure of mine to be here. But this is the time when it's finally time to sit back and look at all of the landscape of the teams and start to be able to rank them when it comes to the hierarchy of the league. And picking out winners and losers, I think this year was oddly straightforward because what I thought was going to be a really chaotic offseason in terms of different moves, we did have a couple, but there have been only a few eye-openers, but really some that were more question marks when it comes to why it is that a team does that. And then there's the looming cloud of a storm, which is potentially Kevin Durant and or Kyrie Irving, as well as the Brooklyn Nets, because that's what the entire league has been looking for, besides really Brian Windhurst, who was looking towards the Utah Jazz when every other analyst, as well as us and other media professionals, would have been looking towards the Brooklyn Nets, because obviously the Rudy Gobert domino falls, and the Jazz get back some decent pieces that they're able to put in their rotation right away. And then you talk about the different size and fit of when it seems like the league is going small. Minnesota decides to go super large. That's obviously something we'll jump into. But I'm excited. We're going to start with the East. And well, and real quick, so the way we're going to do this is like it'll be divided up into two different episodes. We're covering the East and West. We'll start off in the East, and we'll just like say nominations for who we think are winners, and we'll agree or disagree. And I think for the most, honestly, I think for the most part, agree with this offseason because uh, there there wasn't anything like too too extreme except for the Gobert trade, which we'll get into. And then I guess one more thing I should ask you beforehand. What is the biggest takeaway so far from you from this offseason? Because I think for me, it's got to be that the golden rule in free agency, the market always sets and dictates everything. Because that kind of stood out to me, I think, in after the 2016 offseason, when the cap jumped up and teams just used up all their money. And by like 2017 and 18, there was all these great guys that just didn't get anything because the market, there was just no money left. I think with the Gobert trade, with the Murray trade, I think we're seeing another fluctuation of draft picks. We're seeing a devaluation of the first rounder in favor of these fringe all-star guys. Yet again, it's like the market is always shifting. There's never going to be a fixated formula for any of this. Yes, and that's exactly the takeaway that I have, is that teams are prioritizing actually getting the right group of guys versus trying to rank 16-year-old guys that may be in the league in a few years or they might decide that football is better for them or whatever else happens over the next few years. So teams are actually going for it now if they feel like they have a remote chance of competing for a championship because we are at kind of that crux point, and we've seen this with the Kevin Durant kind of market where he's going to be a 34-, 35-year-old by the time he takes the court again and teams are a bit hesitant to overpay and really go all in for a guy that they're going to have to give up already one star player, at least another starter as well, and probably at least five first-round draft picks, plus potentially some draft compensation, swaps, etc. That's a tremendously steep asking price. Or while it's still probably a guy who's one of the five best players in the league, you're talking about acquiring a player who could help you go to over the top, or we might have already seen his best days pass as we saw 
when you have a team like the Boston Celtics that are built with lanky and athletic wings, they're able to get up into the wing space of Kevin Durant and really make things difficult on him. If that's something that is actually going to move forward, we'll see what happens there. But what I've really taken away from this offseason is that, right, like you said, the devaluation of the first-round draft pick in favor of fringe all-stars who are able to raise a team's ceiling versus raising the team's floor. And ultimately, that's what the league is about, is trying to stay out of the purgatory in the middle pack where you have the play-in teams and the first-round exits. You're trying to get into that upper echelon, or if you feel as though you don't have a legitimate chance of trying to make it all the way to the finish line, then you go the opposite direction. And that's what we have seen certainly the San Antonio Spurs do, and I would assume that the Utah Jazz are not done because I've also heard from people who work at the organization that they're not done making moves. There's, there's a lot of tankathon candidates, shall we say. <laughs> there are, and then there are a couple of other teams where you just look at it and you go, wow, this fit is very interesting. In theory, it doesn't work, but I was assumed given the right players and the right play calling, it could happen. And I'm assuming we'll get into that as well. It's time to begin. So Eastern Conference, Europe first with the first winner. Who are you picking? First winner, I'm actually going to go with kind of an obvious choice here, which is the Boston Celtics. Totally agreed. Make the case. The Boston Celtics, obviously this is a team that was two wins away from winning a championship. They took a massive step forward this season, even for a team that, had been to the conference finals two times before with most of the same core. This is the first time that they had actually gotten over the hump, make it all the way to the NBA finals. And even when they were in the NBA finals, it felt like they were in a back and forth punching match with the Golden State Warriors. They just ultimately came up short because they lacked half court playmaking and their ability to always be able to navigate into the right play because they would shoot themselves in the foot with half-court turnovers and balls dribbled off of feet, etc., making that more of a sloppy execution. So they decide to look at their depth chart as well as the market itself. They're going to bring in both Malcolm Brogdon and Danilo Gallinari, two pieces that actually fit perfectly within their system, and they don't give up a single role player. They don't even give us a single rotation player from their top eight that were the same guys that brought them to the NBA Finals. And now you add your absolute sixth man, who might actually be the sixth man of the year favorite, depending on how you look at it, throughout the landscape of the entire NBA, which is Malcolm Brogdon who's absolutely a starting level player and is just yet another plus defender to add to a team that's full of them. And then you get Danilo Gallinari, who is more size than Peyton Pritchard, another body that you can put in to be able to take advantage of mismatches when it comes to post-ups, playing inside and out of the arc, as well as being able to add another dimension of inside-out basketball. So the Boston Celtics have looked at their really minimal amount of weaknesses that they have, but really that half-court playmaking was something that they needed to upgrade, and they didn't have to give up a single considerable role player and rotation player that would be a guy that is actually going to play meaningful minutes in an NBA Finals. So now you look at it when it comes to the Boston Celtics and their outlook for this next season – 
really what they need is that everybody to do their job and Jason Tatum to continue ascending towards the best wing player in the entire NBA. And if they have that level of player, there's really no stopping this team. So the other reason I like this move for Boston, we mentioned this countless times on finals pods. Their kryptonite was the turnovers and the playmaking issues. And the fact that you just took a bunch of minimum contracts, Daniel Tice, Aaron Neesmith, of all things, and this very super-duper protected first-rounder and turn, Bro- turn him into Brogdon. Like, the other thing, too, the interesting play in this is, like, I actually think that was a good deal for the Pacers because people forget Brogdon is injury-plagued and is making big money for three more years. So this could also just easily be a horrible contract, maybe. But in terms of in Boston, though, excellent three-point shooter, can play on or off the ball. More importantly... Marcus Smart insurance for the inevitable, like, pulled hamstring or pulled calf in Game 3 of the conference semifinals that is bound to happen with Smart in recent postseasons. You give gives Boston more fluidity where they can go small or big and even do, like, the weird... Like, I could see OKC or them doing the OKC and doing weird three-guard lineups, like Smart, Derek White, Brogdon. I could see them playing... Brogdon at point guard and going with their bigger lineup. There's so much versatility. And then getting Gallinari as part of the DeJounte Murray leftovers from the San Antonio part of this. And he's just more depth. You can play him in the regular season. Because the other thing, too, is like you don't want Tatum and Brown to play 40 minutes a game in the regular season. And this is just perfect depth for them. So um, unless you have any more thoughts, I think the bottom line I, I, w- I would always presume Boston's the clear favorite in the East right now, just if you're looking at the the totality of all these rosters. Ugh, clear favorite, I think, is probably a stretch because at the bare minimum, the Milwaukee Bucks employ a 27-year-old Giannis Adetokounmpo. Who that is true, that is true. <laughs> when his team comes off of any kind of an L, he comes back the following season with another added element to his game. And we've already seen the subtle improvements of his post-up mid-range game and his turnaround, as well as his free-throw shooting getting better. So there's really no longer a clear hole in that kind of a game. But I will say this, that the Bucks and Celtics, those two feel like the Eastern Conference for the next five years with the potential for another team who I'm going to jump into now, who I feel has won the offseason from the Eastern Conference, which is the Philadelphia 76ers. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go real quick just because I, they were actually my, my team as a winner. And I think, honestly, they became more of a winner once the Harden news dropped that because it's kind of like it's a two way. It's a two edged sword. Like it's moves along the margins. They, they did well, which you'll get into, but not signing Harden to the five year almost max money and having this this financial flexibility it's critical for the team, for Harden, to get more guys in the team. Like, it was it was all around a W for Philly this year. Absolutely. Not only is it a W, but it's also an L in the favor of the Miami Heat. Because while the Heat have really stayed pat when it comes to this Kevin Durant situation, seeing if they can try and get him at a discounted price, which it doesn't seem like that's going to happen at all, the Philadelphia 76ers have signed P.J. Tucker away from the Miami Heat, a considerable starter for them and one of their better half of players in their rotation whereas now that's one of the really 
the holes of the Philadelphia 76ers last year because he can give you everything defensively that Matisse Thibel would have besides that kind of magical transportion defense that you sometimes get from Thibel. But you get a legitimate corner three-point shooter and threat to be able to essentially reunite the 2018 Houston Rockets because they're also bringing back Daniel House. And I've also heard very recently that Eric Gordon is trying himself to push a trade. To- I-, I was gonna make I was gonna make the Trevor Ariza joke soon. He's gonna he's gonna tap in now. <laughs> well, we'll see if Luke and Mute decides to sign for you know a veteran minimum there. <laughs> Well, anyway, I, okay, so God, yeah, yeah. Philadelphia 76ers, I think they certainly fall under the winner category. And if there was a team where it feels like it's now or never for them, that's probably the one because I don't think that we're going to see superstar Harden anymore over these next few years. But he certainly un- seems to understand that he is the clear number two on the team, the same way that Jalen Brown understands that that's his role with the Boston Celtics. And Given that kind of information, knowing that you're actually going to have a better supporting cast around them, look, their potential lineup of Harden, Maxi, Tucker, Harris, and Embiid, there's not many different five or starting fives that you're going to have coming into this next NBA season that has that much versatility, star power, and really three-point shooting making ability. So... I honestly feel great, and I would if I were a Philadelphia 76er fan. As long as Joel Embiid continues to play at his regular season level, knowing that we can really factor in and count on there being a already built-in level of playoff regression, but certainly during this offseason, nothing but Ws from Philly. Well, I think the point you made is super clear and important that Philly, like, this is the all-in year for Philly. You can't play, like, we played Furkan Korkmaz 30 minutes. Like, we didn't have any help. Like, now there's no excuse because I always say that part of why I love defining a winner is, like, with the resources you had, what did you do? And Philadelphia, with limited flexibility, grabbed arguably the best small forward in free agency, depending on how TJ Warren comes back healthy. Definitely the best power forward in free agency with PJ Tucker. Traded a like kind of like blah first rounder that didn't have much value for Shake Milton, who I love, or uh, not Shake Milton, uh, DeAnthony Melton, and getting all yeah Shake Milton no love for for Miami. So getting those three guys and not committing Harden on this like two hundred plus million dollar extension for five years, you combine all of that and they still have a move to make if need be with the Harris contract and something else. They have a couple first-rounders in, in, in the works, too. They've just set themselves up for immediate contention without forking over their future like they did in years past with the Toby trade and then the the uh, the Toby trade and then the extension and then the, the other extension. Like They've actually set themselves up here for some pretty good success. So I agree with Philly. But I will say, yeah, this is a make-or-break year for Embiid because I think we, I think we both probably have Jokic as the queer best center and then after that probably Embiid. If there's any year for that to change forever, it's probably this season because this is a another runner-up year in the MVP voting for Embiid. If the playoff performance is there and Denver falls short, that conversation rebuilds. But I think for now, like it's a critical career year for a lot of players. Like I think Anthony Davis is one of them. I think uh, there's a, a lot of guys, and I think Embiid's one of them for sure this year. Yeah. 
I totally agree. And it's probably one of those things where you look back on the great centers from each era where you have the gold medal and then you have the silvers and bronzes, which for the 90s, would you obviously I think Hakeem gets the gold, but then does the bronze go to Shaq or does it go to David Robinson? And then in this era, I think Jokic is on track to get the gold. And then really the bronze and the silver could go back and forth between I think that Giannis is kind of in a different category than just those pure bigs. But then besides those two, would it go Embiid or Davis? Those two are probably going right back at it because Davis used to certainly be the best big, I think, in all of basketball. But that was not since 2018, early 2020, at the very most recent time. Since then, we've seen him fall off a cliff and we've seen Joel Embiid always have playoff regression every season. So that's something, obviously, that we're all going to be looking forward to this season, even more so than other years. Moving on, however... Yeah, I'm going to go next here because I have a quick one, but remember, this is the offseason, too. We're not just doing only free agency. I've got Indiana in here because Indiana finally freaking blew it up. I think getting rid of Brogdon at this time was good. They still have the Turner piece, which it seems like Miles Turner trade rumors will happen for the next decade as long as he's in Indiana. But I think just from a directional standpoint, tanking last year to get Matherin, they're going to be a, a tank, uh, one of our many tankathon teams at the bottom in the East this year. I, I love it just from I, not from a necessarily like move perspective, what am I grading, but from a. Uh, from a culture perspective and a direction perspective, I love it. I don't love Matherin talking shit to LeBron before he's played an NBA game, but I do love everything else. Yeah. I mean, if that's the only thing that you can think of that was a negative from this offseason, I think that that's certainly a positive when it comes to Indiana. Because while I don't like the specifics of what come out of Benedict Matherin's mouth, one thing is for certain, and we've already seen it throughout his summer league play, is that he actually does stand on his word so far and he's been able to back it up with his actual play now summer league means absolutely nothing as we've seen denzel valentine prove to us but (laughs) as soon as the nba season rolls around we'll see just where the indiana pacers really rank within the hierarchy of the eastern conference like you mentioned this is a team that finally committed to blowing it up for certain and I think that that was probably the right choice given the fact that they don't have the straight-up talent in order to be able to go after some of these other players and try to compete. So, And their first their first pick in the top nine since do – do you know it or no? <laughs> first pick in the top nine. The, this is the first pick in, their top ni- in the top nine in Pacers history since George McLeod in the late 80s. They, they, like, think about it. Like, Indiana has never been – even Paul George was picked 10. But other than that, they've never had, like, a top, top pick. So you get Matherin, and then you're going to have a top pick in this year's draft just based on all the, all the counting signs. So that, quickly for Indiana on my end, but I'll let you go first with the Eastern Conference winner if you've got more. More Eastern Conference winners. I feel like – I've kind of exhausted those assets when it comes to the Eastern Conference. The only other one that I can think of that's kind of an obvious winner from the Eastern Conference it would probably be the Detroit Pistons. Uh, I was going to say, people. yeah, I've got Detroit as a winner, but a, a lot of losing in the East this year. <laughs> yeah, certainly. And that's because I think that this Detroit Piston team, there's always that question of who is the best league pass team going into the season 
if you were to give out team awards for some kinds of those individual awards, like most improved team or most most valuable team, obviously doesn't make much sense, but most improved team within the Eastern Conference, we could see the Detroit Pistons going from the very bottom of the heap to being right in that level of maybe a step behind the Cleveland Cavaliers, but in the same level certainly as the Washington Wizards and the Charlotte Hornets and just a step behind probably the Atlanta Hawks in that same level. But I could certainly see a team like that who would be better this coming season than the currently in purgatory Chicago Bulls. So uh, let's get into it now with the losers because there's some fun ones here. There's a lot of nominees, but you got to go. We need to start with the, uh, should we start with the $250 million (laughs) nominee with Washington? (laughs) Mr. No Trade Clause? (laughs) Yeah, Mr. No Trade Clause. He becomes the 10th player in NBA history and certainly... The worst. The worst. The worst. Yeah. Now, the only other one that comes to mind when it comes to a guy with a no-trade clause who was not an all-time great is actually none of them because the next closest is Carmelo Anthony. And Anthony is, in most people's top 50 players of all time, due strictly to his actual career, not really accomplishments, but the career totals that he was able to boast from essentially a 10-year prime of being the, what, Alex English or the Dominique Wilkins of the 2010s where he's just scoring a ton of points every season and just kind of goes under the radar because his teams were never that good. And quite frankly, he was never good enough to put them over the top. But one thing is for certain is that he was going to get his every night, night in, night out. Bradley Beal is one of the same kinds of players like that, only he doesn't do it quite as well. His shifty off-ball scoring helps it so the other teams or the other players on his team are able to get his theirs. But, man, this is just a disaster. If you really wanted to just be able to retain your star, you can sign them to the two-year. You can sign them to the two-year or the one-plus-one. What There are so many other options here that make more sense than what is essentially a fully guaranteed also with the 15% kicker and the no trade clause. They gave him everything. All they needed to give him was like the Titanic and they would have given every single part. Like the other thing too, he wants to be the next Dirk Nowitzki, like, you know, but I think Dirk won (laughs) with Bradley Beal hasn't done a lot of winning. So the, okay. No, Dirk had his 2011 year, even KG decided at some point that he was just done in Minnesota. And that's something that, Damian Lillard officially, as of yesterday, has decided, I am not going to go the KG route. I'm going to stay the course throughout the entirety of my basketball career. So the facts about Bradley Beal from an article I did like about a couple weeks ago, not predicting this at all. I predicted Beal would come back on like a five, like I think it was either a four or five year deal, like with like 240 guaranteed, but it wasn't like the trade clause or the the 15% kicker and all these other bullshit incentives. So Beal... So since Washington lost in the 2017 playoffs, and since Beal was the best player on the roster in 2019, the Wizards have never had a record above 500 in the last four years. Uh, They have won one playoff game in the last four years. And by the way, that one playoff game involved playing in the the playing tournament and then playing against Philly in in 2021. Uh, Beal is 
had the awesome, but what was it? I think it was like the 30 point per game, uh, 32 points per game in 21 or it was, uh, it was 2020 or 2021 and then no 2020 and then just falls off a cliff. In... Yeah, that was back in 21. That's when we were talking about him versus Steph going back and forth for the scoring title at the very end of the season. It wasn't quite David Robinson level where it comes down to the very last day of the regular season, but it was very close, and we were thinking to ourselves at the time, I hope Steph Curry wins this because it's another thing to add to Steph Curry's massive mantle trophy case, but... It would feel like a slap in the face if Bradley Beal, of all players, were to have won a scoring title because it would be one of those inexplicable things that we see throughout NBA history where you scratch your head 30 years from now. You're like, oh, this guy was a scoring champ? (laughs) Yeah. $250 million because he could sabotage his team's success by putting the ball in the hoop? Yeah. So so, the other thing, too, is like, Washington again is embracing the mediocrity where like I actually love the Monte Morris tra- uh, trade and I love uh I love that they got rid of KCP cuz his value could be on the on the slight trajectory but it's going to be another season where Washington will be the 8th or ninth seed make the pl- make the 8th seed as a plane and lose in like 5 games or just not make the plane at all and they're going to have like the 10th pick in the draft again it's just going to be and this will be the same case for another half decade like where was the leverage? That's why I don't get in this. Like, because I was talking to a buddy earlier, and he goes like, "Well, thank God we didn't trade for him." Because imagine if I found out Beal had a five-year deal with the fifteen percent trade kicker, and he can only go. So if you're Washington, you committed yourself to a half decade of Beal when he's coming into his mid thirties. He might already be out of his prime, by the way. We really don't know. And then if he wants to be traded, you're not going to get peak value because he could pick the destination. Uh, where he wants to go. Like, it, it's beautiful. I love it. <laughs> yeah, well, he can't really pick the destination that he wants to go because there's a no-trade clause now. So that conversation is completely out the door, and we can fantasize about what kind of team would work well with him or would Denver have done a straight-up Jamal Murray for Bradley Beal move, anything of that sort. But... That also doesn't really happen at this point because Bradley Beal is going to become one of the richest players in the NBA and good for him. He's going to get generational wealth, but he's also a player who has more L's than W's for his entire career. So not sure if it's fully deserved. So next loser for me, I think this is an obvious one. I think maybe not just because of the player, but I think just the asset play. God damn, I hate New York's offseason. Because the Hardenstein move actually actually recuperated it. But I don't get the logic in, okay, I got Hardenstein for $8 million. Let me give Mitchell Robinson 4 for 60 when I already have Julius Randle and Obi Toppin. So that was a bit weird. The 15 mil for him is a lot. I hated that Like if we just do the Jalen Brunson dance, paying him $25 million is maybe above market value, but it's also you paid him $100 million the first NBA player that's not an all-star to get $100 million like that, and then trading out of the lottery to get first-rounders to dump three players to the Pistons to get money to sign this guy and just lose your cap space. And we talked about this too before. I think the the the, the conflict in their offseason where they wanted to embrace 2023 
which is why they signed all these guys to two-year deals. And within half that time, they're like, actually, never mind. We're going to dump all of that, waste assets on this plan, and go for Jalen Brunson. I just don't – like, New York is going all in to be the seventh seed. I just don't get it. Yeah, I mean, they must think that Jalen Brunson is, you know, a Jesus at this point. Jesus <laughs> the savior of New York. It's hard to know, really, because there are some executives that think in the league that Jalen Brunson was just having his real ceiling capped by playing alongside Luka Doncic, where he's not actually able to fully represent his tool of skills and the assets that he can bring to the table. So in New York, there's going to be no shortage of him having the ball in his hands. And if he can go from being a fringe top 10 point guard to potentially an all-star in his first season with the New York Knicks, well, then you might have something to talk about. But that's really only something that we saw in a limited amount of time against the Utah Jazz, who we know have one tremendous defender and then four awful ones, just turnstiles all over the roster. But the New York Knicks, I also agree with you, they were a dumpster fire of an offseason, and they're just going to throw money again at – a really iffy player and see if it happens and the other thing too is this is more of like a i don't even know if it's a hot take but i think it's a bit of a, a a brunson point where i mean somehow this brunson thing was a loser for both dallas and the knicks because it's it's a case where it's something i brought up where it's like for dallas you want to you want to overpay to keep the asset for new york you don't want to trade assets to overpay for their asset. The other thing with New York, too, is like Brunson operated in space, and I'm surrounded by R.J. Barrett, who fell off a cliff from three last year, Julius Randle, who fell off a cliff from three la- this past year, like really bad, Thibodeau's playing a center, and then I have, like, you already have Derrick Rose, so that's another guard who can't shoot. Quickly's like very heat checky. You don't really have a lot of shooting on this team, so I'm really banking on. Like Brunson's post ups and creation and and slashing kind of gets minimized too with this uh this not so five out New York offense. Nah, I mean I think that Evan Forney is still potentially an all star, so they have nothing to worry about. <laughs> do, do the Boston does Boston get a bigger win when New York went up to uh went up to Boston and was like, hey, can you just take Evan Fournier for the love of God? Like, <laughs> can we put the Fournier baby at the door and just run away? <laughs> I think that Boston thanks New York actually this season for their NBA Finals run because the last time that they played horribly this season was in New York when R.J. Barrett banked in the game winner. And then since then, they went on a three-month-long just devouring of the NBA. (laughs) So this is where it gets tough for me for a loser because there's a lot of, like, miniature losers for me. Like, I mean, I hate to say this, but I think Miami should be a loser because – it's the matter of you lose P.J. Tucker to a rival. I wouldn't have paid that contract. But, like, I don't know what your thoughts are on this because I asked a couple Heat fans. It kind of reminds me of 2021 where Miami's like, ooh, we did well the previous year. Let's just run it back and see what happens as the other teams get better. Because Boston got better. Philly got better. Atlanta got better. I think New York, even if I hate it, got better. Milwaukee's still good. And Miami's just going to run it back. I think they're due for huge regression next year. And they're basically relying on, like, Jovic to be a good starter or relying on a summer league guy. Like, Miami just not doing anything and running it back kind of scares me. Well, not only are they just not going to run it back and just stand pat, they lost one of their starters to another team that they are going to be competing against. 
and a team that they just knocked out this season. It's so. like the, it's like the Bucks Heat thing in twenty in twenty 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 one where they nabbed PJ Tucker yeah. and Milwaukee needed PJ Tucker, and it's also like the Jay Crowder thing where we just lost our best versatile four to a rival, and we don't have the means to replace that versatile four. Because uh, Nemanja Bjelica and uh, Andre Iguodala did not do that uh, in 21. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, Nemanja Bjelica has decided to quit the NBA entirely and go back to playing overseas. Yeah. But, okay, another loser for me in the Eastern Conference, I would say, is the Charlotte Hornets, and it's because of one player. Miles Bridges was probably on the verge of getting a healthy bag in probably around the same realm of Boyan Bogdanovich a few years ago, which would have been about 18 to 20 million per year. Since then, he spent a bunch of his money on paying his own bail to get out of jail. And that was really something that handcuffed not only him, but the team as well. Now you're standing here and thinking, if you're Charlotte, that Mark Williams is supposed to single-handedly change your defense, and by bringing in Steve Clifford, who I would assume is able to elevate the defensive side of the ball for the Charlotte Hornets, you're still going to basically be running it back with the same roster that was awful on that side of the ball and really didn't have much in the way of shot creation outside of LaMelo, who also didn't get to play enough. So unless you're going to be banking on LaMelo Ball becoming a legitimate every-night all-star, this is a team that lost the offseason when they probably should have been continuing to push forward. And to me, it didn't make much sense outside of the fact that Miles Bridges just screwed the team selfishly. And... It kind of sucks because, honestly, this is one of my favorite teams to watch in an out, night in, night out throughout the regular season because of the way that they can share the ball and the way that they can actually space the floor and make tough shots. But now I'm thinking to myself, this is a team that's going to be right in the middle of the Eastern Conference pack when there are a lot of teams that got better this offseason from that side of the conference, just like Miami. I don't think that they really have much in the way of being able to get to that next level this season. And they're on this loser list of the Eastern Conference because one of their players made the ultimate loser move, committing a felony, and then handcuffing the entire organization as a means to an end. So I'll, I'll get with the jokes in a bit, but on a serious note, so what also makes this Bridges situation fascinating is that the timing of it, because this got released what like 18 hours before free agency began because it was it was the it was the night before it was wednesday night slash thursday super early morning and free agency was thursday at uh six o'clock eastern time number one number two now charlotte's in limbo because like i think we can agree the nba is probably more keen on being aware of player conduct and unlike the deshaun watson thing with the nfl where that's still pending. This is actually concrete evidence that's become now very trendy where like for this Bridges thing, like I wouldn't touch that guy with a 10 foot pole now, especially with Charlotte. Like, do I want to pay this guy who has legal problems now, like four years and a hundred plus million dollars. Like that's a super fine line there. But then now I like, it, it's such a complicated situation, but on a less serious note, I also love when teams rehire the coach they fired beforehand just several years ago so it's good to see steve clifford back i like they got screwed over so hard by the kenny atkinson thing and ever since that <laughs> also we need to make an all hornets 
uh, crime lineup because Lamelo, Montrez Harrell, Devontae Graham, Miles Bridges, and there's one more that I'm forgetting, all have done something bad off the court. So the former Hornets are stirring some stuff up there. <laughs> <laughs> wow. First team all prison cell. <laughs> so, okay, the Hornets are a big L for me. You can make a case they have a worse L than the Wizards because at least the Wizards are embracing the suck. Charlotte just doesn't know what the hell they're doing. They're just running in circles. <laughs> well, that in and of itself is taking an L, and this is a team who we thought was probably going to make one of those under-the-weather, or I guess under-the-radar moves in offseason to improve their roster, but they have done the exact opposite by standing pat Kenny Atkinson, then Miles Bridges, and then nothing else in terms of key additions besides Mark Williams, who I actually like out of Duke. Also, I hated the fact that they just, like, ransomed one of those lottery picks because they were like, we don't need two players, we'll just take one. I, I hated that, too. I, I just don't I don't like when teams just, like, waste lottery picks for nothing. Like, especially in that pool of, like, 10 to 16 where it's always, like, a good player. Like, there's always, like, a Bam or a Tyler or a... Uh, Donovan Mitchell. I hate when teams do that too. And Charlotte, of course, had to pony over one of those lottery picks for no reason. It was absolutely for no reason. Yep, totally. So this right. is I would say this is where it gets hard because honestly, a lot of these teams I think left over aren't clear losers or winners. It's kind of a wait and see. Like, I mean, this is why I personally think is a loser. I don't know what the hell Milwaukee's doing because you signed Portis to this massive four-year deal fully with the MLE and then you're signing for the the not the taxpayer MLE was Joe Ingles I know he's your guy former whatever but he's he's 36 I believe or 35 coming off an ACL he won't be ready until February or March at the earliest and he's supposed to be like kind of your bench your main bench guard or forward when Drew Holiday or Middleton isn't in the game I don't know why you sh you didn't go after a wing if you're Milwaukee or an Ishmith or uh like I guess like an Ishmith Monte Morris archetype for just like a dribbling guard that can do something. I just don't know what it, it was kind of like the Lakers with Lonnie Walker, which we'll get into. I just don't know why you would waste your your one avenue for improvement on a 36 year old with knee problems and who might already be washed. You know, I actually see this kind of differently. Really? Nice. actually does make sense because one of the things that you want to put around Giannis is more bodies and more shooters. So one of the things that Joe Ingles does really well is his on-ball playmaking as well as his lob-throwing ability. Putting that kind of addition to this team that really lacked some kind of a just dribble shoot outside of Chris Middleton – that's really kind of the addition that would help bring to them off the bench. And there really aren't that many players in the league that can actually just straight up shoot the ball better than Joe Ingles. He's a 41% deep shooter for his career, and he's even better off the dribble. Now, who knows how much he'll be able to actually handle the ball coming off the bench. They basically got him for the minimum coming off the bench. So Joe is not going to play much, but... If he's one of those mid-season additions that you just can add to the roster in kind of a microwave way, more veteran experience, lots of playoff experience, and a guy that is one of the better trash talkers in the entire league, even if you have a guy that you're, is in the game just to shit talk another team's good player for 10 minutes and get in their head. The Draymond corollary. <laughs> What's that? The Draymond corollary. <laughs> 
he's not in the same realm as Draymond in terms of just on-court impact. If he was, that would be one of the prized possessions of the entire offseason. But Joe Ingles, actually, I do think can bring some of that valuable missing experience that this team is probably needing off the bench because outside of their normal starting guys, they really had Jordan Nawara. I like Pat Connaughton still, but Connaughton's not going to be able to handle the ball at all. George Hill is fading towards retirement and is closer to that than even Joe Ingles is. Wes Matthews might be 40 years old, too. (laughs) So the other thing, I love how Milwaukee just extrapolates every ounce of basketball talent from the George Hills and Wes Matthews. Like, they were washed, like, five years ago, and now they're just back. Like, it's like like 2016 all over again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, basically. So, I mean, and to be fair, like, the theory of the Ingles, like, I just hate the Ingles move from the sense of, like, okay, they signed this guy and we're just banking by March he'll be, like, good again. But in theory, like, if Milwaukee needed one thing, it was, like, a shot-creating, bigger guard that can play a little forward and won't kill you defensively, and Ingles can bring that. So we'll see. I don't. I honestly don't have any other clear losers. I mean, what are your thoughts on the Atlanta thing with the Murray trade? Yeah. Very quickly, I think that San Antonio, at the very worst, was able to put themselves in position to win in the future. And even if that means we're going to try and do our best to go for a 60L season, this coming season, to be able to land Victor Wembanyama, then so be it. He is every bit that good. And if we're talking about the three most hyped prospects ever in no order, it would be LeBron, Kareem, and Zion. Who knows if Wembanyama can get to that level because he's going to be playing overseas. Whether he is or is not is absolutely that good, and it's crazy to think that a player can have that deep of a bag and the ability to get everywhere on the floor offensively and defensively at seven foot three. So from San Antonio's point of view, knowing that they're also going to say goodbye to Lonnie Walker, who will be an L.A. Laker, this actually makes a lot of sense because they know that DeJounte Murray is not good enough to be a true number one asset on any team that has the aspirations to actually compete. So knowing that they were going to have to probably pay him the max contract coming up soon anyway, they decide to offload. They get the three first-round draft picks in return, and it's much of the same deal as Milwaukee had to give up in order to get Drew Holiday when they acquired him from New Orleans. So that made a lot of sense there. And obviously that resulted in the championship. As for Atlanta here, the fit between DeJounte Murray and Trey Young, it only works if Trey Young can learn how to score off the ball the way that we've seen Devin Booker, Kobe Bryant as well. Kevin Durant is probably the best ever at scoring off the ball and being able to get to his spot with minimal dribbles. That'll be a new dimension that Atlanta seeks to be able to unlock in Trey Young's game because DeJounte Murray is not a good enough catch-and-shoot shooter in order to play off the ball and still be effective in that way. So in theory, it does add another dimension and some more defensive versatility to Atlanta to be able to play in a smaller lineup while still being able to have an extra body that you can help hide Trey Young. To me, it's more risk than reward from Atlanta unless it happens to be a gamble of the century. Whereas San Antonio, they are getting the picks, they are getting more capital, and to me, 
they are the slight winners here, even though Atlanta is acquiring a player who just joined, I believe it was MJ and Oscar as the only players before the age of 25 to have averaged 29, 6, and 2 steals. Like, the guy is... Or actually, no, MJ wasn't even... No, DeJounte Murray was the only player ever to have averaged 29, 6, 2, and 2 after his... Or before he even turned 25. So the guy had an all-time great season under the radar. And that's the kind of player that you're adding to a team that just needs more in the way of point of attack defense. So it makes sense for both teams, but certainly San Antonio has a higher floor and has been able to set themselves up for long-term success. Before before we move on to the Western Conference, um, am I supposed to call Brooklyn a winner or a loser? Because... <laughs> On the one hand, they're getting rid of the KD Kyrie era potentially. On the other hand, an interesting wrinkle here. Maybe we're not seeing this right. I'm going to predict this now uh, on July 9th. Maybe them getting TJ Warren and trading a first for Royce O'Neal, maybe they're just going to run it back for a year. Like maybe Kyrie accepted the player option. Durant's not going to get shit for any trade. If Brooklyn just runs it back, I actually kind of like their offseason. I'm, I'm not mad. Yeah. This offseason actually does make sense in that regard because they're still going to be able... They're bringing back Claxton. They brought back Patty Mills as well. Joe Harris is likely gone. You, you, so, you lost Bruce Brown, which kind of sucked. That was a great that was a great deal for Denver, I think. We'll, but. we'll get to Denver soon. Woo! Yes, so obviously that does make sense. Running it back for one season, you can always do that when you have Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving on the team because those two alone can put you as a top-five offense right away at minimum. Given the fact that they were able to add pieces that can add some more defensive flexibility, that also does make sense. TJ Warren is another one of those front-court players that this team really hasn't had in, in terms of the ability to score as a driver and a slasher alongside Kevin Durant, which makes sense. Claxton needs to get bigger, and he will continue to improve. Still no amount of jump shot there, which is a bit of a question mark, considering he is the first player ever to have missed 10 straight free throws to start an NBA playoff game. <laughs> no Jack's record, actually, for 0 for 8 starting at the line. So given the fact that he's still limited on the offensive end, He's not going to be anywhere near an all-star level player, but you don't need that as long as you are Brooklyn. I think running it back for them actually makes sense, assuming that they can sort out any kind of a rift between KD and Kyrie, because as long as those two are on the same page and they're competing, you got a shot. Well, and, and of course, the, the elephant in the room is because of the Harden trade, you can't just tank because then you'll have the situation you had. I love how history repeats itself in the NBA where Brooklyn after the 2013 season with KG and Pierce is now in this predicament again where they might have to trade all these guys and they don't have any of their picks and it's just going to be a crap show of a rebuild. But like one last note on Brooklyn, they're honestly better off running it back because you can rebuild Kyrie's trade value, I think, if you actually you know play some games in the NBA. KD, the problem is just this four-year deal like, KD sees himself as an asset, and so does Brooklyn, because he's on a four-year deal. But I'm if I'm a team, like, for instance, Miami, I just talked about this, I wouldn't fork over Hero and Lowry and three rotation players and four picks and three or four swaps. Like, 
all that for this 34 year old with the knee troubles like it doesn't make sense there i mean do you have any other final thoughts on the kd trade well, I don't have any more thoughts on the KD trade because it hasn't happened. So, <laughs> this does, which that would be unforeseen at this point because given the price that Minnesota had to pay for Rudy Gobert when they're going to be paying $450 million at the center position, that street price has only elevated the asking price for Kevin Durant, which, by the way, I think that if Minnesota doesn't do that deal, that's the same level of deal that a team could have acquired Kevin Durant for. But now, seeing that the league has changed the actual market price for a player like Rudy Gobert, Kevin Durant's value only grows in size. And now you're seeing a lot of teams fall out of the race because they're just not willing to go to that extreme level of commitment. And then one last note here. He already complicated this by saying, I want to be in Miami and Phoenix. If you're Brooklyn... Because the issue now is, like, if you're Toronto, let's say, I think Toronto should trade for Kevin Durant. I would not give up Scotty Barnes if I was told, like, oh, yeah, Durant doesn't want to be here. He might ask out. Because interesting footnote for Durant's historical legacy is that he has now soured his way out of two, potentially three organizations, if you really think about it. Because he soured his way out of OKC, then Golden State with the last year with Draymond, and then now potentially with Brooklyn. It, it, it's very uh, headache for... Like I hope it doesn't get lost in the history in the history front that Durant has now wussed his way out of three different teams. Like it's not it's not a bad thing, but just like for the context for the context and for like could you build around could you build around him? Like this Brooklyn tenure just in, in retrospect is horrible for for that whole thing. The idea that you can build around Durant, it, it's not looking good, right? Or am I just overreacting here? Well, we can think about this and zoom out for a little while. Is how many other all time great players can we say? have left teams in shambles or have forced their way out this many times because the only other one that I can think of that did it really even once that was on his level would have been, you know, Moses Malone. But even then, he was an MVP and realized that his time in Houston was just up. Like maybe he- maybe Wilt going from Philly to the Lakers. Uh, like Shaq did it, but it wasn't like... It wasn't like Shaq said, I want out of here. It was just like by circumstance, like the the magic thing ended, then the Lakers thing. Like Shaq, you can make a case and maybe Wilts, but other than those two guys, in terms of the top 15, Durant is probably in that category, which is kind of insane. Yeah. And when it comes to Durant, you're already talking about a guy on that level. So teams know what kind of player they would be getting. The problem is Brooklyn has stood pat and Rightfully, they should. The guy's got four years left on his deal. They're not just going to cave to some asking price where you're getting two starters and two picks, but you're not getting an already established all-star. It just doesn't make sense from their end. They're still trying to compete, and if they feel like they have a chance to be able to sort things out with Durant and Kyrie as well as some of the other additions they've made this offseason, that makes sense because it's not going to be any easier in the East over these next few years. Teams are continuing to get better and throws a lot of good young talent in the NBA right now. I like how I turned a winners and losers pod into a just got like You cannot have an NBA pod. It seems like for the next month without talking about Kevin Durant, which is always awesome. (laughs) 